All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our Foundations of Faith class, and today we are looking at the fifth chief part of the small catechism, confession and absolution. Before we begin, let's have an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. In the uh, 2017 edition of the Small Catechism, that's the one we've been using in here, uh, you'll, want to, you'll want to open to um, pages 24 and 25. That's where we will begin our, our study. The single most offensive thing to visitors who come and see us for the first time on Sunday morning, can you guess what it is? It's not me. <laughs> I'm the second or third, I think. Yeah, Bob. Confession. Yep, confession absolution. That's the most offensive thing. We get, we get started right off the bat, don't we, with that. <laughs> Opening him, everybody's feeling good. Boom. I, a poor, miserable sinner. There's the first and lesser of the two offenses connected with confession absolution. The first has to do with confession itself, that, that we would confess, I am a poor, miserable sinner, as at least one of our settings of the liturgy indicates. Many, many Christians don't want to make that confession about themselves. They want to say something to the effect of, I, a uh, triumphant, victorious, spiritually mature child of God, give thanks to God that I am not like these other men. <laughs> why, is it that we, why is it that we enter liturgically? Now, this is a, if you look into terms of the development of the Christian liturgy over time. This is a fairly new addition that we do, in fact, have confession absolution at the beginning of our service. Do you remember what immediately precedes that confession absolution? Obviously, we have the opening hymn, and then we have something that immediately precedes it, and then we go into confession absolution. Do you remember? Invocation. Invocation, yeah. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Well, how does that connect with the immediate confession of sins that follows upon. God is holy and we're not. And God is very much present. And not so much in an everywhere and nowhere kind of nebulous way, but he is very much present and locally present. It's our Lord himself who teaches this, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. So there's an obvious connection then when we begin our services in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We immediately plead our unworthiness to be before him, our unworthiness to call upon him. But we also call upon him, understanding who he is as Father, who loves us, not as divine judge, but as Father, as Son, who lays down his own life for us, Perfect love has no greater than this, that one would lay down his life for his friend. And his Holy Spirit, who is also known as the Scriptures as the tormentor, 
Comforter. Comforter. Advocate. <laughs> yeah. so, so we know who God is. And that is why even in our liturgy, we confess our sins unto God our Father. Remembering who God is. You know. Otherwise, we wouldn't want to incriminate ourselves. If, if we were conceiving of God in, in his strict justice as a strict judge, I, a poor, miserable sinner, plead the fifth. But because we know him to be our true heavenly father, because we know him to be Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we can simply speak the truth to him. I, a poor, miserable sinner. And then we go on with our, with our general confession. Okay, so as I started, that's, that's maybe the first most offensive thing in terms of chronology, but not in terms of emphasis. The second great offense, can you guess where it comes in confession absolution? And this is really the primary one. Bingo. Bingo. That a guy with this misshapen of a beard would <laughs> dare to pronounce absolution over that. Yeah. <laughs> right. Who does this guy in the robe think he is to proclaim, to proclaim the forgiveness of sins? And you can tell, too, that in the way, the way it's said, it's said rather directly, isn't it? It's not merely said. I mean, this is said, but it's not left there. But it's not merely stated as a, a, a sort of a fact. It's not stated as um, God forgives you in a general sense, right? But it's actually direct communication in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you your sins in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And that's where the offense lies. That's where the offense lies. So what we want to do then to make sure that that our theology, that our divine service, our practice there is biblical, is right. We want to go back to the scriptures, back to the foundations, and ensure that it is. And then also, not only for our own sakes, but um, for the sakes of others, be able to communicate this truth to them and defend it in such a way that, you know, not that we remove offense, maybe the offense is good, but that we point out how the offense is, is either good and wholesome or maybe misguided with some certain misunderstandings uh, going on in the mind of the one who's offended. Okay, as we, as we look at page 24 and 25 in the Catechism, um, we're going to have a conversation of confession and absolution. And what's chiefly going to be in view is what is called individual, sometimes private, confession absolution. That's chiefly what's in view here. It helps us to understand the context in which the small catechism is, is written, circa 1529, coming out of mid the medieval Roman Catholic system. How did, how did confession absolution work? Well, in the first place, there wasn't confession absolution. There was confession Satisfaction. Confession, satisfaction. What is that? Penance. Penance. So that you confess your sins to the priest, and the priest doesn't say, Upon this your confession, I by virtue of my office as a called and ordained servant of the Lord, announce the grace of God to you. And in the stead and by the command of my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I forgive you your sins in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now he says, Ah, be about ten Hail Marys. About 24, our fathers. Let's see if that, if that heals you, if that makes satisfaction, reparation 
for the temporal consequences of your sin. What about the eternal consequences? Oh, well, Christ has got those covered, kind of, sort of. But the temporal consequences, you've got to take care of. Um, those sins have put you into the red, into the, into the debit category. Now we've got to get you back up to even, into the credit category with the black. So you've got to do these acts of penance to make up for that. What happens if you die in the red? Purgatory. And that's where purgatory actually is good news. Isn't that sad? Isn't that tragic? Isn't that upside down? Purgatory is good news, because without purgatory, I'd be damned for sure. And of course, now, enlightened by the gospel, by the free forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus, by his perfect, all-atoning death on the cross, we have been set free from that to where now purgatory is bad news. Right? We don't, purgatory is not only incorrect, it, if it were, it would be bad news. It's less than what Christ has won for us. Okay, so what else can we say about this? That you go and see your priest, not for confession and absolution, but for confession and satisfaction, or confession and penance. What else, what else happens in the Roman system? In order to take communion, which, which in the Roman system only takes away venial sins. Remember this distinction between mortal and venial? And mortal in the Roman Catholic system just means really, really bad. And venial means not so bad. Which is already what? Wrong. Wrong. <laughs> Wrong. Now, if you break the law in one place, you are guilty of all of it. Yeah, all of it. All sin is, all sin is not equal, that's for sure. But all sin is equally damning. That is also for sure. Okay? So, um, in the Roman Catholic system... Communion is only for venial sins, for the forgiveness of venial sins. Because as we all know, on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, said, this is my body. He took the cup, said, this is my blood, given and shed for you for some of your sins. Just the venial ones. Now, for your sins. Full stop, period, right? Yeah. So we know then that Christ makes no distinction and Christ says that his supper is not only for venial sins, it's for all sins, period. Okay, so we know that this whole system is, is phony from the start and not in keeping with our Lord's words, not in keeping with the New Testament itself as Jesus describes it. That New Testament is his cup, is his blood shed for us for the forgiveness of our sins, all of them. So we've already betrayed the New Testament in the medieval system and we've set up, we've set up confession, penance as the way in which one must deal with mortal sins before getting to the communion table. And so the church institutes a rule that you must confess all mortal sins before communing. You must confess these to the priest. Um, if you leave any out, it's on pain of eternal damnation. And then, and then likewise, it becomes a law that you must con, uh, confess your sins um, periodically. Frequently, it seems to have been once a year. And when you confess your sins, again, you have to enumerate all of them, every last one of them. Anyone that you, that you have forgotten remains unforgiven. Now you can see, you can see what drove Martin Luther nuts as a, as a monk. No sooner would he go into his, to Staupitz, his confessor, and confess his sins. And Staupitz was better than most, so there was probably some absolution therein. He would leave and immediately remember some other sin. And he'd come back. 
Staupitz is on record of, of saying uh, to Luther, you haven't, you haven't ever confessed anything remotely interesting. <laughs> ah, but that's what this system does. How can you ever be sure that you've confessed all of it? So this, this becomes a, a painful burden and a heavy, heavy legalism. And there's, there's all of this guilt and coercion involved. And so when we understand this context, and this, th- that this was the practice of this individual confession absolution, now we're poised to see how evangelically it is presented to us from the scriptures in the small catechism. And we're able to see the way that it is presented to us in the scriptures and in the catechism as a gift to poor sinners. Not as a law, not as a burden, not as a coercive thing, but as a gift that we can avail ourselves of. As I mentioned last week, for Luther, the theology of baptism and the theology of confession absolution are so closely related that in fact, in his large catechism, when he writes that a year later, confession absolution drops off. It is simply assumed underneath baptism. Look with me on page 24 and you'll see exactly how this takes place. In the fourth part, down at the bottom of page 24, what does such baptizing with water indicate? Now this is most clear, the imagery is most clear if we think of immersion, but it works either way. It indicates that the old Adam in us should by daily contrition and repentance be drowned and die with all sins and evil desires and that a new man should daily emerge and arise to live before God in righteousness and purity forever. Now the springboard of this, is, of course, is Romans chapter 6, where Paul writes, We were therefore buried with him, buried with Jesus, through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So what, what are the two parts that baptism indicates? Well, part one is a drowning, a crucifying and burying of the old Adam. Part two is a resurrection, a rising, a daily emerging and arising up out of the waters, up out of the tomb of the new man that is within us so that we might even now walk in newness of life. That's the spiritual resurrection that precedes our bodily resurrection. So it's got these these two aspects to it. Well, what does it mean, concretely, that by daily contrition and repentance we would drown the old Adam? Yeah, we're baptized daily. We wake up, we make the sign of the cross, remembering our baptism. We pray the Our Father, the baptismal prayer, remembering that in baptism we become God's children. And... um, Not typically in the morning. Typically at the end of the day, we might spend a few moments confessing. Confessing our sins to God. Praying to Him. And perhaps not even in all that formal of a way. Just acknowledging what we've endured that day. What ways we've failed. What things weigh upon us. And indeed, the truth is, we do that throughout our days. Throughout our lives. In a sense, the whole Reformation is built upon this. Because, because, of course, foremost in our Lord's teaching is, is this single word, repent. 
Do you remember how the 95 Theses began? Luther says, when our Lord Jesus Christ told us to repent, he meant that our entire lives should be lives of repentance. Okay, so if we want to say this, this first aspect of, of drowning the old Adam, of warring against him, of crucifying, of putting him to death, of course we fight against him in every way we can, and then if he, if he wins the battle, we confess against him and thereby drown him in the grace and mercy, in the righteousness and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Okay? And then the second part is that we emerge and arise. As we emerge and arise out of those baptismal waters, we remember that all our sins are washed away, that we're cleansed in Christ, that we're clothed in his righteousness. And that accords perfectly with the absolution. With that word of God, that living word of God that the same voice of God that said in the beginning, let there be light, and light comes out of the darkness. He says into our unclean hearts, our unright spirits, I forgive you your sins. And that same word has the power to create in us clean hearts and renew in us right spirits. Okay, so in other words, this last part of baptism accords perfectly with confession and absolution. Broadly speaking, those principles where we're daily confessing our sins, we're daily remembering the absolution we have in Christ Jesus. Now, this takes, as I mentioned, a particular form in the context of the 16th century and in the context of historic Lutheranism in considering the question of uh, individual confession absolution or private confession absolution. Why, why is the word private confession absolution, even though I use it all the time, why is it not absolutely the best? What it, yeah, it's not really private. Um, because, because is there anything to be ashamed of in being seen as a penitent? You know, what if you were, what if you were waiting in our... Have you, have you been to our church office and seen how Wendy's remodeling it all and making it beautiful? You should come hang out. There's coffee, there's chairs. It's great. You know, what if you were, what if you were waiting in there and... and um, you saw somebody else, and, they said, well, what were, and, and you said to them, well, what were, they, what were you doing here? Oh, I was confessing my sins and receiving absolution. Should there be any shame in that whatsoever? No more shame than if we go to the doctor's office. Where are you going? I just got back from the doctor. He gave me medicine. Why would we feel ashamed of that? Don't we all stand up on Sunday morning anyway and say, publicly, I abhor... So there's no shame, that's, and that's why private's kind of strange. Do you know what Luther says in the, in the preface to the Catechism? He says, when I urge you to go to confession and absolution, I am only urging you to be a Christian. To take advantage of this gift. So... Um, Maybe private isn't the best word, as if we have to worry about our identity and our privacy. Now, true enough, the content of our confession is private. And in fact, that's part of our, of our ordination and, and call service is every single pastor in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, publicly promises and in a godly way swears never to divulge any confessions. And of course, God, we pray that God would help us do this by His grace. And truth be told, um, there's a lot less temptation to this than I had maybe initially thought there was as a, as a student and as a young pastor. I think it's quite analogous to, again, the medical profession. When you've seen one, you've seen them all. And the same is true with sins. And they just cease to be very interesting. 
and you realize that you're there to pronounce absolution and give guidance according to God's word and to apply the, the medicine of God's, of God's gospel and his word to, to a soul, and that's your job, and you've done it, and you move on. Well, in fact, more than half the time, when the penitent is, is reading the general confession, the pastor is confessing right along with, in his mind, in his heart. As, as you're reading those words, the pastor is himself making that confession. So um, there's nothing to be ashamed of in going to confession absolution. And, and that's why technically it's probably a little better to call it individual confession absolution than it is private. Okay. Now, as we dig into uh, then private confession and absolution, let's pick up on 25 and let's just see what the, what the catechism has to teach here. It's, it's quite simple quite straightforward. Again, this is how Christians should be taught uh, to confess, and the assumption of the catechism is that the head of the household is going to teach this uh, to the household so that it's not alien to them. All right, what is confession? Confession has two parts. First, that we confess our sins, and second, that we receive absolution. That is, Forgiveness. I probably should have started by saying that since this is our foundations class, our very, hopefully, simple class, that absolution is a fancy word for forgiveness. To be absolved is to be forgiven. So, the second part that we receive absolution, that is forgiveness from the pastor as from God himself. Why? Because the pastor is like God? Certainly not. You can ask my wife about that. <laughs> or my kids, certainly not. Um, but because the pastor has been placed into the office, he is supposed to speak what God would speak. Right? So there's no merit or worthiness in the pastor. He's simply the mouthpiece of God. That's why we, we receive the, the absolution, forgiveness from the pastor as from God himself, because God has charged the pastor to say these words on my behalf. Okay? And thus, not doubting, but firmly believing that by it, by the absolution, our sins are forgiven before God in heaven. And this is a remarkable thing to, to ponder. You know, what would you, what would you pay if you, could, if you could zoom up into heaven, have a face-to-face -face with Jesus, confess your sins, be absolved, and know beyond the shadow of a doubt that you were forgiven and that you were a child of God in good standing and that you were an heir of eternal life. But God locates heaven's forgiveness not up in heaven, but down here on earth. In fact, I, I imagine if it were possible and you got up to heaven and you said, Lord Jesus, could I have an absolution? He'd say, go back down to your pastor. I put heaven's forgiveness down on earth. And I put my forgiveness in the mouth of your pastor. Not because he's worthy, but because I've called him to this very task and this pleases me. So again, take a look at that last line. By it, our sins, by the absolution, our sins are forgiven before God in heaven. Heaven's forgiveness is located on earth. It's scandalous to people because, you know, people want it to be more spiritual than that. But God is always and ever joining the spiritual and the material together, and in ways that are quite unimpressive to us, precisely because he wants to be believed, and he wants to make known his strength in and through our weakness. Okay, so confession has two parts. 
confession and absolution. What sins should we confess? Before God, we should plead guilty of all sins, even those we are not aware of, as we do in the Lord's Prayer. Yeah, every time you pray the Lord's Prayer. In fact, as we prayed at the beginning of this class, we all confessed that we were sinners. When we prayed, forgive us our trespasses. So, we plead guilty of all sins, even those we are not aware of. In fact, the ones we are aware of are probably analogous to the tip of the iceberg. You know, looks like a hulking mountain sticking out of the ocean. That's the sins we're aware of. The ones we're unaware of are right below the surface, and they're entirely more massive, unspeakably more massive. Those are the things we're not even aware of, the things we might not even reckon as sin within ourselves. So we plead guilty before God of all sins. We even confess to Him that, that the good works wrought in us by Him, by His Holy Spirit, have been tainted with the sins of the old Adam that remain in us. So we have no boast whatsoever before God except have mercy on me, a sinner. Okay, so we plead guilty of all sins before God, even those we are not aware of, as we do in the Lord's Prayer. But before the pastor, and this is a mercy to the pastor, we should confess only those sins which we know and feel in our hearts. Do you remember the movie Goonies from, from the 80s? Remember when, yeah, people my age, do you remember, do you remember Chunk? Chunk, do you remember when Chunk gets uh, captured by the robbers? And they're, they're, they're like harassing him. They're saying, tell us everything. <laughs> and he gets so tweaked out, he starts making a life confession. When I was in first grade, I blah, 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 blah. <laughs> when I was in second grade, he just starts going through his whole life, unloading everything. It's hilarious. That's hilarious. Now, there's nothing wrong with unloading everything that troubles you into the ear of a, into the ear of a pastor. But in no way, shape, or form do we need to communicate to the pastor every last sin we've ever committed. Remember, remember what's in the backdrop here, this idea that you have to enumerate everything or it's not forgiven? Nonsense. So we can simply plead guilty before God of all sins right, and leave that into his hands and into his care, trust, entrusting ourselves to Christ. And then when we go before the pastor, we're very frequently going with particular sins in mind right, that we want to have the gospel applied to. Satan loves to isolate us. That's a component of spiritual warfare, to isolate us, make us think that we're, we're doing all kinds of things and suffering all kinds of things that no other human being has experienced. When we go to the pastor, there's this realization of no temptation that has come upon you isn't common to all men. And the gospel is sufficient for this too. And so the application of the gospel to those particular sins that trouble us in our hearts. And so that's the advice here in Council of the Catechism. Before the pastor, we should confess only those sins which we know and feel in our hearts. That's really the proper, proper uh, reason for going to, uh, to individual confession absolution. Okay, well, which are these sins? We want to be careful that when we go into confession, we don't start, you know, we maybe start with confessing our sin, but then we confess to help people react to that sin, and before we know it, we're starting to confess other people's sins. <laughs> we want to make sure that we're pretty laser-focused on our sins. And so, so which are these, and how do we do that, and how do we stay focused? Here's the advice of the Catechism. Consider your place in life according to the Ten Commandments. 
Now, in a sense, you can, just, you can just measure yourself via the Ten Commandments. Remember Luther's admonition, we talked about that at the beginning of this class, how, how he enjoins us to all have the Ten Commandments memorized. Ten Commandments, Creed, Lord's Prayer. In fact, Luther gets rather spicy about that. If you're unwilling to memorize these things, you shouldn't go to communion or call yourself a Christian. So there's some, uh, I don't know if that's evangelical encouragement. That might be law encouragement. But it's encouragement from Luther to take these things seriously, to embed them in your heart. So one way to examine yourself flat out is to go to confession and simply say, you know, in the first, against the first commandment, I've sinned in this way and that way. I haven't trusted in God above all things. When this particular, when this particular worry came upon me, I didn't immediately go to him in prayer. I immediately went to my bank account and wondered if I could survive it. So I recognize that as looking for a small g God, serving, serving mammon instead of, instead of the one true God. Okay, so we can just walk through the Ten Commandments, making this kind of uh, self-examination and confession. We can add one more layer to that, and that's what Luther suggests here, your place in life. What does he mean, what does he mean by that? He actually means your vocation. Okay, your various vocations, the stations or offices in which, uh, in which God has placed you. So um, consider your place in life according to the Ten Commandments. Now I want to show you one thing. I want to show you one thing quickly. Um, if you'll flip forward in, in, to page 33 in your catechism, um, those of you who are not working with this edition of the catechism, you can still uh, search forward, flip the pages, and you will find the table of duties. That's on page 33. So I just want to point this out to you, that the table of duties, here is, here is the catechism's teaching of vocation. So what do we see first? We see two bishops, pastors, and preachers. Okay. Well, this is in the, the, what we would call the estate of the church. And here's what the scriptures say pastors are to do. Okay, what's the next Category, what the hearers owe their pastors. So in the right-hand kingdom, in the estate of the church, we are either a pastor or hearer. And here's the duty. So when we consider our place in life according to the Ten Commandments, we might say, I might say, this is the ways that I failed as a pastor. Um, you know, I might, you might confess, these are the ways I failed as a hearer. If we flip on, what do we see next? What's the next heading? Of civil government. This is the estate of the state. So we see here the three estates being built. The right-hand kingdom, or the estate of the church. The left-hand kingdom, or the estate of the state. And then we're going to see um, the estate of the family come up next. But we're acknowledging that we've got these vocations, these roles, and we, consider, we can consider our place in life. We can consider our, our roles in accordance with the Ten Commandments, and now suddenly we have plenty to confess. So, of civil government, what is required? Of citizens, what is required? So again, we're either going to be in a governing role or a governed role in the left-hand kingdom, and this is what the scriptures require. And then with, with the next heading after that, husbands, wives, parents, children, and then in truth, workers, employers, youth, widows, everyone, this really all is, is an umbrella for the estate of the family. So now you have the three estates you have the estate of the church, the estate of the, of the government, the left-hand kingdom, the estate of the church, the right-hand kingdom, and the estate of the family. And you can consider your place according to these estates, according to these 
vocations. All right, and then you can do so in accordance with the Ten Commandments. So, taking us back then to page 25, we can see very concretely what it is that, that Luther is, is enjoining us to confess here. And then he does just a very, a very brief treatment by way of example. So, are you a father, mother, son, daughter, husband, wife, or worker? And, and the idea there is to pause and reflect on those vocations and the ways in which you failed to perform those according to the Ten Commandments. Next question, have you been disobedient, unfaithful, or lazy? Have you been hot-tempered, rude, or quarrelsome? Have you hurt someone by your words or deeds? Have you stolen, been negligent, wasted anything, or done any harm? Now, even just running through that brief examination, probably many things flood into your heart and into your mind. Those are the things that trouble you in particularly, and so in particular. And so you want to confess those things to the pastor and receive absolution for those things. All right, let's pause there. Let's see if you have any, um, any questions or any, uh, anything you would like to add. Yes, I see a hand in the back and then a hand up here. Are we running a microphone today? We're not. I will do. I will do the best I can to restate your question for those listening online. I'll try and keep it simple that way. Thank you. <laughs> if not, I just change it into what I want it to be. <laughs> what do you say to someone who? Yeah, it's a good. It's a good question, um, and I want to. I want to be sure that there is. There is uh, about the closest we get to coercion. Is or, or pressure is what Luther says when I urge you to go to. Confession and absolution, I'm just urging you to be a Christian. Okay? That's the closest. But we do remember that the specific form of individual confession and absolution, of going and confessing your sins to God in the presence of a pastor and then the pastor absolving you, that this right and this, this manifestation of confession absolution is in and of itself uh, man-made. Is in and of itself man-made. Um, that's a point that the catechism makes, and it's a point that our confessions make. Okay, so, so I'm not going to compel someone in the sense of God has commanded this particular form and you must do it on pain of sin, you see. But I'm going to say God provides you this gift and opportunity. And I might also say to someone in that position, um, don't knock it until you've tried it. Don't be so sure that it's precisely identical to what, and the experience is identical, and the fruitfulness is identical to what you're going through on Sunday morning. For one, on Sunday morning, there actually is no oral confession of particular individual sins. That act in and of itself is what keeps, people most, keeps most people these days away from confession absolution. Why? Because it's terrifying, right? Yeah, pride. Because it's absolutely unnerving and terrifying to actually speak out loud. And of course, I mean, there's a huge and profound lesson in this alone. We weren't ashamed to do the thing, but now we're ashamed to say it out loud. And there is a great power in quantifying that and saying that and confessing that and having that be out there. It is a way of, you know, the, the same thing happens to us where, uh, and it can happen to preachers too, the way we preach and also the way we think as Christians, like two sides of the same coin, we have no problem saying, I'm a sinner, but that concept of sinner has precious little content, doesn't it? Well, what do you mean you're a sinner? Oh, I break the commandments. Which ones? Well, all of them. 
that's all the deeper you understand your sin, that's all the more concrete, then, then pardon me if you don't have much of a need for a Savior or if your joy and desire in our Lord Jesus Christ is similarly superficial. You know? So it's, it's only, I think, when we get into the depths and concrete reality of our sin that that absolution starts to take on even more, a more concrete nature and a deeper nature. We see that grace prevails even there. And where sin abounds, God's grace in Christ Jesus abounds even more. And so there's this whole three-dimensionality that one engages in that, again, is very, very rich, very, very rewarding. And, and, and vouches one the opportunity not only to understand his own sins better in light of the law, but his Savior better in light of Christ's particular mercy applied to those sins. And that's one of the things that you know, a pastor will do for you as he hears your confession very frequently um, the sins we confess in accordance with the Ten Commandments are answered directly by Christ on the cross, by the nature of the crucifixion itself. So we can see absolution in the form of the cross specific to uh, the sins we're dealing with. You know, think of, just think very generically, the first table of the law. We sin against God. What is, what is Christ doing on the cross? Being perfectly obedient to God even when God has forsaken him. Think very generically again. What do we do when we confess uh, sins against commandments 4 through 10, the sins against the second table of the law, against our neighbor? What do we see Jesus doing on the cross? Laying down his life for his neighbor, even though his neighbor is actively spitting on him, mocking him, and putting him to death. So there's answer. There's depth. There's profundity there. And I think that that's the risk. That's the risk, is we get this atrophy of our theology, this atrophy of our understanding of sin, which corresponds with the atrophy of our understanding and appreciation of Christ, and the whole thing becomes weak and anemic. Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, there, was another, there was another hand here. Yes, sir. I just had a little question about the rosary. Um, I, know I used to live and work in South Florida, and a lot of shipwrecks, they found you know, rosaries dropped off before the wreck as, as if people were you know, going through it. Mm-hmm. They do that just to clear out their account, or is it more to? I mean, why, why do you think in during times of stress they, they pray the rosary? Yeah, to kind of wipe out their sins, but if they don't make it. Yeah, well, the specific prayer to Mary is where the issue is, because we why pray to Mary when we can pray to our Lord Jesus? And this is a medieval throwback of like maybe you know he's the righteous judge who's coming in anger. We should probably get on his good side by getting to his mom, and maybe she can calm him down. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's, it's an abominable kind of theology. We'd find Mary more merciful than Jesus. Mary herself would be outraged over that. Um, so, so in that sense, you know, there's no room for a rosary, and the rosaries are very frequently assigned as penance, and people are always trying to do their penance up to the last minute, too. Um, there are, uh, you know, I don't think that there's anything wrong with a, a rosary if, if it is a, a tool or device used to guide one in God-pleasing prayers or that kind of thing. I, who cares? There's no law about that. And in fact, in some of the iconography that comes from the 16th century, you can see our church fathers depicted with something like that. Now, the Mary is taken out of it. There's often a crucifix depicted on it. But then it's just simply a tool by which to, to pray. Yeah. I mean, I, nobody's going to object to that as long as it's not being used in any spiritually deleterious way. Yes, sir. Just to reinforce that a little bit, the, if you take the if you take the Hail Marys out of the rosary, like you say, the rest of the rosary are all 
occurs out of scripture and the creed. Mm. I've never. At the, end the, at the end of the rosary is the crucifix. Mm. Yeah, I've I've never looked at that. I don't I don't know enough about it to tell you the truth. Um, except I'd be scared. I'd be skeptical. It's kind of hard to strain the Pope out of. He's tricky. He's kind of oily. Yeah, even when you even when you strain him out, there's like this residue that's left behind. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, I'll take a look at that. Thanks. Okay. Any other thoughts? Any other thoughts? Okay. Yes, please. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And there, it's not at all inappropriate either to you know to say to the pastor, "I've confessed this sin before. I I know you've absolved me. It's still there, and I'm still wrestling with it. I'm still dealing with it. You know. And then and then a conversation will ensue. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly right. And there are, um, you know, we we talked we talked in one of our classes this last week. Um, in the Hammer of God, in, in Bogertz's Bo novel, there's this great distinction that's made, this great analogy that's made, and it's all, it's all kind of fiction but real. <laughs> fiction but a sermon that really preaches and is really true. And, the, and sin is likened to little stones in a field that you can, you can kind of pick up. There's a lot of them. You can, you can be pretty effective and pretty quick at picking them up and getting them out of there. And then in the field, you start to find bigger stones much more effort, much harder, much more laborious, and then you also find stones that you're going and scratching through the dirt for the edge and you can't find it. And it just goes. And those, in the, in the way the sermon works, that's likened to Golgotha, the rock into which the, the cross is drilled and the blood of Christ falls upon it and simply, like there is no writing that this side of heaven that has to be simply uh, propitiated for. Atonement has to be made for it by the blood of Christ. And that's, that's very frequently something we end up butting our heads against in terms of confession absolution because we say, we say this is so thoroughly built in me, this sin, that I could confess this each and every day or each and every week because it manifests itself in this way or this way or this way. You know, um, So that, that becomes a great and wonderful way to deal with those sins that trouble us and have such... Uh, negative impact on our lives and the lives of those around us is to take those to confession absolution. Remember that we are absolved. Remember that that, that is not our identity. That is the flesh. I mean, this is where Paul's so beautiful. It's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. That's not blaming it on the devil. That's realizing that there's something deeper in me that is not going to be cured, that can only be blotted out uh, by Jesus Christ our Lord. And he will have to root that up and make us new. And, you know, and that's precisely the Christian use of death. As we realize that through death, the only thing that dies is the old Adam in us. Through death, what happens is that entire field gets cleansed of all rocks. And we are finally ourselves as God intended us to be for the first time. And what a relief and joy that will be. Okay, did I see another, another hand? Mm. Therapy rightly, understi- rightly understood. Therapy has its root in the Greek word therapoio, which is to heal. And if we understand that healing as an application of the, 
of the mercy of God, the forgiveness of sins won by Christ on the cross, absolutely healing. So as long as we understand it as, as that form of therapy, nothing wrong with it. If we understand it as kind of the Americanized form of therapy, of like, let me lay back on the pew and tell you what I'm thinking about, uh, the pastor might guide you in another direction. Yeah. Okay, well, with our remaining time, let's look very briefly at page 27 and this concept of the office of the keys, which is a rather large concept, but again, the catechism treats it um, uh, just in a fundamental way, and so we're going to do the same. In fact, um, yeah, in fact, you can see there on page 27, oh, what, what goes, this is a short form of confession. It's similar to the one we use in our hymn notes, similar to the one um, we use for confession absolution. By the way, confession absolution, there is a, there is a pastor waiting on Thursday mornings from, seven, uh, from 6.30 a.m. to 7 a.m. every Thursday waiting to hear your confession and pronounce absolution. Also, uh, by appointment, anytime you want to have confession absolution, even if you've never done it before and you say, just walk me through this and let's do it in the least possible painful or embarrassing way, no problem. Been there, done that, I'll walk you through it. And this form is very similar to the one we use. Okay, what is the office of the keys, page 27? You can see the asterisk, and you can drop down. This question may not have been, there's some question there, but may not have been composed by Luther himself, but reflects his teaching, and was included in editions of the Catechism during his lifetime. And indeed, if you look at, if you look at the, the Book of Concord and the documents there, um, this is absolutely reaffirmed in many, many places. This exactly what we're going to learn here from the small catechism in regard to the office of the keys. Okay, well, what is the office of the keys? The office of the keys is that special authority which Christ has given to his church on earth to forgive the sins of repentant sinners, but to withhold forgiveness from the unrepentant as long as they do not repent. All right? Well, what's the biblical grounding for this? Where is this written? This is what St. John the Evangelist writes in chapter 20. The Lord Jesus breathed on his disciples and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Okay? And I sometimes lament that the preceding verse isn't included. Where Jesus said, where Jesus says, as the Father sends me, so also I am sending you. What did the Father send Jesus to do? Well, to make atonement for our sins, that's off the table for us, but then to proclaim that atonement and the forgiveness of sins. And so, in that sense, precisely as, as the Father sends Jesus, Jesus sends us. Remember what he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He breathes on them, receive the Holy Spirit, and then he says, if you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Okay, so this is the office of the keys. Um, why is it the office of the keys? Because in Matthew 16 and in Matthew 18, there's reference to these keys, the, the loosing key and the binding key. And you can see what that would mean in terms of John chapter 20, um, you know, loosing someone from his sins. Likewise, opening the kingdom of heaven to him, binding someone in his sins, um, or closing the doors of heaven to him. Okay. Now, what's the valid usage of this? Again, this can't be used at the whim of the pastor. This can't be used at the whim of the congregation. Otherwise, it loses all validity. This, 
This has authority and validity only when it's done in accord with Christ's word. So if you're unrepentant, then no forgiveness. If you are repentant, then full and complete forgiveness. Okay? And, and now what does is, what is Jesus say? He breathes on his disciples and says, Receive the Holy Spirit if you forgive the sins of anyone. Not if you tell people that I have forgiven their sins. You see the difference? This is where in our liturgy we, the pastor says, In the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you your sins. The I corresponds with the you of Jesus' words. If you forgive anyone his sins. He invested in them so that their forgiveness as office bearers is identical to his forgiveness. And this, by the way, is the biblical rationale and reason for why we say what we say and do what we do on Sunday morning. And if someone is open to what the scriptures teach, well, then the offense goes away. If they're not open to what the scriptures teach, well, then the offense remains, but that ceases to be our problem, as we can demonstrate very clearly how this comes to us from our Lord Jesus. Okay, last but not least, what do you believe according to these words? I believe that when the called ministers of Christ, uh, this is language for pastor, when the called ministers of Christ deal with us by his divine command, now that's the key, and what's his divine command? Forgive the sins of the repentant, don't forgive the sins of the unrepentant, that's by his command. When the called ministers of Christ deal with us by his divine command, in particular when they exclude openly unrepentant sinners from the Christian congregation and absolve those who repent of their sins and want to do better. Now look at the, look at the two words there. Exclude, that's the one, the one key, and absolve, that's the other key. So when they exclude openly unrepentant sinners from the Christian congregation, what would be an example of that biblically? 1 Corinthians 5, remember the guy who's caught up in some kind of major sexual immorality that's quite public, and the the Corinthians seem to be congratulating themselves on how gracious and merciful and Christ-like they are and and just forgiving him and letting this go, and hey, we're all sinners, it's good. And Paul says, "Uh, no, no. And that man is excommunicated. Now, by God's grace and mercy, it seems to be the fact that by 2 Corinthians, by the time Paul writes that letter, Paul is urging them to welcome this man back in. He has repented of his sins. He has been convinced by the shunning of the congregation through excommunication that his sin is in fact, in fact, does cut him off from the body of Christ. He has repented, and Paul is urging that he be welcomed back in. Okay, so there's a biblical example of this kind of excommunication or excluding openly unrepentant sinners from the Christian congregation. And then absolving those who repent of their sins and want to do better. And, the, and of course, the Bible is... Um, replete with examples, Old and New Testament, of forgiveness. Um, Christ our Lord, of course, um, remember how he's, how he's preaching in the really crowded house, in the really crowded room? It's so crowded that the, that the friends want to get their friend who's paralyzed in, and they can't, and so they go up on the roof. Could you imagine this happening? Jesus is trying to preach, and the roof <laughs> opens up, and down comes this guy. And Jesus, at least in their eyes, very anticlimactically says, Your sins are forgiven. Is that what they really wanted or intended? No. Of course, the Pharisees immediately scoff at this. Who is he to forgive sins? 
Jesus says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has been given authority to forgive sins. And then he says to the paralytic man, I tell you, rise and walk. That powerful word that heals the man also indicates that that powerful word of his absolution is certain. And that's why he says, all authority in heaven and on earth I have given to you. Um, so that we can speak that, that same word. All right, and then, and then I know we're picking up kind of mid-sentence, but the called and ordained ministers of Christ are to deal with us according to God's command, excludingly, excluding openly unrepentant sinners and absolving those who repent of their sins and want to do better. This is just as valid and certain, even in heaven, as if Christ our dear Lord dealt with us himself. So there's the, there's the real strength of, of absolution. Um, you can say, I know for a fact that sin has been forgiven me by God in heaven because I've confessed it and I've received heaven's absolution on the lips of the pastor that Christ has sent. That was good. We actually made it through a section. Did you have a question or a comment? Quick question. I know you probably answered this just from being you. Do we have that authority to say? Absolutely. In fact, in that instance, you have the authority to, uh, to baptize. In your catechism, um, on the very back is a, uh, is a short form of, of baptism. Yeah, emergency baptism. And you can look at that and you can remember that the essential aspects are water and I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right? And, in, and if there's not time or ability for that to proclaim absolution, the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to them, absolutely what we should be doing. Yeah. Um, the office of the key is given to the whole church. It's executed publicly through the office of the ministry. That's really the shape and the form of this part of the... But, of course, the proclamation of the forgiveness of sins given to all Christians everywhere. Saliva yeah. is mostly water, too. They know the battlefield. Oh, <laughs> I'm, there have been creative baptisms out there, no doubt about it. Yeah, yeah. And the Lord is gracious and merciful. We have to remember, too, that bat- it's not like he's sitting up there with his, che- with his uh, you know, board saying, okay, is there faith? Oh, no baptism. Sorry, you just missed it. How don't you go? That's not, yeah, that's not our Lord at all. So he's gracious and merciful, and uh, it is only, as our Lord Jesus says, unbelief that condemns. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. It's not a lack of baptism that condemns. It's only a lack of belief that condemns. Yes, sir? This is not a quick question, but whatever. Um, should we worry about not producing fruits, meat for repentance? And the fact that we're worried about it, does that mean that we don't have to have this? <laughs> Kind, kind of, sort of. I mean, we do, we do want to bear fruits worthy of repentance. We do want to be circumspect about that. And that's probably if we truly think we're not bearing any fruits whatsoever. Go and talk to a pastor. and He'll fruit inspect you. No, no. <laughs> but he'll be able to more, more thoroughly address what's really at root there. Um, in, when, everything's, when everything's healthy in our spiritual life, when we're not under demonic attack, it's perfectly normal for a, for a Christian to say, I acknowledge, I acknowledge that I am regenerate by the Holy Spirit. I acknowledge that I believe in Him. None of this is perfect. None of this is in fulfillment of the law, but that's not the question, right? I, I acknowledge that He works good works in and through me. You know, I desire, I desire to be saved. There's the chief, right? There's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. In fact, I was just going across a section of that this very morning in, our, in, our, um, in Article 5 of the Augustana, of the Augsburg Confession, it says this very thing, that in the same way we look at baptism and the Lord's Supper, this is going to be scandalous to people who have been taught that this is Calvinistic. Apparently it's not. It's in our confessions. Um, that we may also look to our works and see the fruit 
and see that that is a miraculous thing worked by God in and through us and simply affirm that and say, God be praised. What he says is true. Now, when we're spiritually ill, when we're under demonic attack, then, yeah, we might not want to turn to our fruit. Uh, the devil has his ways there. We want to turn to something like baptism. Um, absolute, 100%, easily understood to be God's work, external to us, etc. So there, there again is where a pastor can be very helpful in fetching that out with you. Yeah. All right, my friends, that's all the time we have for today.